Hello and welcome to Mormon Stories Podcast. This is John DeLynn. As always, I'm very excited to have you with us today. It has been a while since uh, my uh, last few podcasts, especially the one with Grant Palmer. I want to thank all of you for your overwhelmingly positive feedback about the Grant Palmer podcast. Uh, really appreciate all your emails and blog posts thanking me for that. Grant Palmer thanks you as well. As a follow-up, um, we have invited FAIR, uh, the apologetic group, to do a response. And so far, we haven't been able to find uh, the right person for that. Um, but we still have an open invitation to FAIR to provide us with um, someone to provide a response or at least paint a mosaic, an alternative mosaic, from a faithful perspective of Mormon origins. Today, I am very, very excited to have with you, have with me, a very special guest. Um, his name is James W. Parkinson, or uh, Jimmy, as I like to call him. Uh, he happens to be my cousin, but before you uh, become turned off and think that this is just uh, blatant nepotism on Mormon Stories Podcast, um, let me just tell you a little bit about uh, my cousin Jimmy. Jimmy is a graduate of Brigham Young University Law School, uh, the inaugural class. Is that right? Correct. Um, but aside from that, he's, um, I think, one of the finest lawyers within Mormonism. And there's a lot of Harvard grad, um, Harvard grads out there within the blogger knuckle that might take issue to that. But Jimmy, um, Jimmy is a, a trial lawyer uh, out of California. He's um, He's participated on some of the largest cases in the history of the United States, including the, the tobacco case and the settlement um, there. Uh, he'll, we'll probably go through a little bit more of his career, but I would say he's one of the finest lawyers within the Mormon Church. Would you object to me saying that? No objection. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. That's probably an oversell, but I appreciate it. Would you like that stricken from the record then? No, I wouldn't. <laughs> okay. Um, anyway... Um, my, my cousin Jimmy, I think, is going to be interesting uh, to you from several perspectives. He is uh, LDS, grew up in the church, and has an interesting story um, to tell there, though we're not going to focus on that uh, during this episode. But what we're going to do is talk about um, three things during this uh, three-part podcast. The first is going to be uh, Jimmy's um, ascent into the career of law, and specifically as a trial lawyer, and talk a little bit about how he became a lawyer and what it's like to be a lawyer um, and, uh, you know, be a lawyer who's also a man who's somewhat faithful or, or very faithful to, to the church. So that would be uh, part one, sort of trial lawyer and Mormon. How does that all work? Um, the second is going to be um, quite a divergence from the first episode because Jimmy has co-authored a book called Soldier Slaves. Um, James Parkinson and Lee Benson together have written this book. It um, is published uh, by the Naval Press, what is it? A Naval Institute Press out of Annapolis. Uh, um, Naval Institute Maryland. Press. Um, it's a fascinating uh, book about uh, a member of the church named Harold Poole. We're going to get into this in detail, but basically Harold Poole um, was uh, a participant in one of the most infamous events, um, at least in the 20th century in, in military history, uh, the Bataan Death March. He's a survivor of the Bataan Death March, um, a man who was um, forced into slave labor uh, by a Japanese corporation during World War II, survived, um, and then um, went on to uh, live a very healthy and productive life. We're going to tell his story um, through, through Jimmy's narration. Um, 
which is also recounted in this book, Soldier Slaves, which I'm going to talk to you about. And then the third part of this episode, we're going to talk about um, the class action lawsuit. Is it a class action lawsuit? Is that right? It was both a class action lawsuit and also lawsuits for individual plaintiffs. Which, um, which Jimmy was one of the leaders on um, to try and uh, achieve or receive some type of uh, compensation uh, for, for that slave labor. And, um, and this case wasn't just sort of a local case. It wasn't a regional case. It became a national case that reached uh, the United States Senate. And so uh, Joseph Biden and Orrin Hatch, our own Orrin Hatch, um, wrote the forewords to this book. On the back of the book, it says uh, by Tom Brokaw, this long overdue story of great courage and great suffering rewarded with great injustice should be required reading for every member of Congress. It is a tale to make you at once proud and angry. And so part three of our podcast will be recounting uh, a bit about the legal battle uh, that Jimmy engaged in to try and uh, help, uh, help us repay the debt to what many have called our greatest generation. So without any further ado, uh, Cousin Jimmy, uh, welcome to Mormon Stories. I appreciate the invitation to come and talk on all three topics. I look forward to your questions. Well, thank you. So uh, tell us where you live. Well, I currently live in Bermuda Dunes, California, but my wife and I just purchased a condominium in Midvale because our son, Brett, is an assistant U.S. attorney, and he lives in Sandy. We have two grandbabies and one two weeks away. And so we wanted to be closer to our family up here. So we actually have two places now. Well, uh, I can say as an inhabitant of Logan that we'll be glad to have you close by, at least somewhat close by. Look forward to many visits. And I may actually pick up the check one of these times who got to do That would uh, be a first. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's just talk briefly. Tell us a bit about, you know, where you were born, a little bit about your childhood, a couple stories that might be interesting just to paint a color for what type of family you grew up in, and what formative events might have led to the career of, of law? Well, first of all, my father is a doctor. He's now 85 years old, and he's retired. He practiced in the small town of Indio, California, which is uh, just outside of Palm Springs, California, very near where I live now. My father was educated at Utah State, and then he went on to Tulane Medical School in New Orleans, Louisiana. And that's where I was born. I lived there for six years, and then we moved to California. And that's where we've been basically ever since. Uh, I graduated from high school in 1967, served a two-year mission for the church in Argentina, and then came back, finished undergraduate at BYU. And then I was in the first graduating class of the law school at BYU, Left BYU, went down to um, uh, Indio, worked in a very uh, prominent personal injury plaintiff's firm uh, with a man named Tom Anderson, who's a nationally known plaintiff's trial attorney. Was with him for 12 years, went with another uh, firm for 10 years, and I've been on my own now for about uh, 10 years. What did you study in your undergrad at BYU? Well, I graduated in Spanish with uh, a minor emphasis in English. Okay. That was a natural extension of your mission experience, I imagine. It was. When I was in Argentina, I fell in love with the Spanish language. And when I came back, uh, back in those days, you could get 16 credit hours if you took one class and then you got that grade. And I thought, well, gee, that's a magnificent way to go. (laughs) 
And uh, so I did that. And then I got into Spanish literature, Latin American literature, the grammar, and, uh, and I, I've continued to study it uh, all these many years. So you still speak it, huh? Well, I speak it not as well as I once did because I got real busy, but uh, I enjoy speaking it. I do it every chance I get. Not not as well as our president, George Bush, maybe. I speak Spanish significantly better <laughs> than George Bush. <laughs> so were there any, you know, uh, why why law school? Why the profession of law? Was it just a financial decision? Was it a practical decision? Or were there any altruistic you know, motives behind it? Well, as you know, John, because of our private discussions uh, over the many years, I have a father who is a remarkable man in many ways, and I love him and I admire him. But if he had one flaw, it was that he wanted to micromanage all of his sons and their lives. (laughs) From the time I was a little boy in New Orleans, my father wanted four doctors. The only issue uh, was not, are you going to be a doctor? The issue is, are you going to be an orthopedist, pediatrician, oncologist? There was never any doubt what you were going to do. Personally, as I was growing up, I loved to tell stories. I loved to gather people around me and and regale them with either a made-up story or I'd report on something. I fell in love with language. I can remember as a little boy... um, I arrived in California the same year the Los Angeles Dodgers did. Hmm. And I used to have a, a transistor radio, and I'd listen to the games every night. And there was a remarkable sportscaster named Vin Scully. He could describe a scene on the baseball field with a word picture that when you did go to the ballpark, which I did a couple of times as a boy with my uncle Jim Beatty, uh, everybody had a transistor radio. Even though you were seeing it, you wanted to hear what Vin Scully was going to describe. Two things I remember. One is one night Sandy Koufax was pitching with a great left-hander. And Vin Scully said that his curveball was so effective that night, it looked like a ball falling off a table. Mm. And you knew with the way he described it mm. what was really happening. And then he described flying into San Francisco International Airport which if you haven't done it, you come right over the water and it goes from water to runway. Mm -hmm. And I remember when he described it, I was so enthralled with how he used words that I fell in love with it. Now in high school, I wanted to go into speech and drama and I loved history. And I remember one semester I came back with straight A's 1B plus and my father saw the report card. And instead of saying, well, gee, you did great in all your other classes, He focused on the B-plus. He said, that B-plus is in chemistry. Anybody can get straight A's in those other subjects, but, you know, you really have to be a student to get an A in chemistry. He was not mean-spirited, but he was incredibly uh, manipulative in a kind way. He didn't try to make me a drug dealer, but uh, I felt that pressure. I think if I were to be brutally honest with you, the only reason I went on a mission or the primary reason is because my dad was pushing me to become a doctor, and, and I just didn't want to do it. And so the only way to postpone it was, <laughs> I'm going on a mission. And I was gone for two years, and I came back, and he wanted me back in the chemistry. I waited till my dad became a volunteer physician in Vietnam, and I checked out of Chemistry 106 in the middle of the semester, and the, and the lab uh, instructor told me, uh, that I was the best lab student he'd ever had, don't do it, stay in it. And I said, 
if I stay in this, my dad will get me to medical school. Mm. I don't want to go. Why didn't you want to go? I didn't care for the sciences. Mm -hmm. They just didn't interest me. Yeah. Um, language did. And I didn't really think about law back then. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was nothing really that caused my mind to come together and wrap around the law. I didn't have any role models. I had a couple of uncles who were lawyers, very fine men, but but nobody who I said, oh, I want to be like him or her. So were your high school years in the 60s then? Yes. Were, were there any injustices, social injustices that were going around that um, you know also impacted your, your consciousness at oh, all? Oh, ab absolutely. I mean, um, I came from the South. And when my grammar school would meet every morning, I have a vivid memory of the principal and the teachers leading us in the Pledge of Allegiance. There were two flags. Hmm. There was the American flag and the Confederate flag, and we'd sing songs like Dixie. Hmm. And those kinds of things were still extant at that time. And when Lusher School was integrated, it made Look Magazine. But I wasn't conscious of that. Uh, one thing that I really respect my parents about is during my formative years, we were never once subjected to a racial epithet. Mm -hmm. There was never a question about equality. There was never an issue about, oh, he's better or she's better because of birth, money, inheritance, or race, or ethnicity. Mm -hmm. And then in California back in the 60s, we had the Watts riots mm -hmm. when Martin Luther King was assassinated, Robert Kennedy, tumultuous time. And if you reflect on what was going on in the church at that time with the um, African-American issue, if one thought about it, it would be very disturbing. I chose to play basketball. Mm -hmm. I played on a team where, quite frankly, uh, of the five starters, I was the only white. Mm -hmm. But it didn't cause me any problem because of the way I was raised. But as I look back at my life and I read uh, books about that era, I'm bothered by it. Um, you know, when you read To Kill a Mockingbird and you understand the underlying theme of that book, which is human dignity, that's what it's really about. You say, where was I during the great battle of the 60s? Well, I was a high school student. I guess not much was expected of me, and I quite frankly didn't produce much. But as I look back on my life, I say, you know, how my dad raised me the, um, and my mother, my mother's love of literature, um, my dad's caring for other people, always gave them their dignity. Those things uh, had a tremendous impact on me as a young man. One thing that I remember vividly about New Orleans is my brother Rick, who's uh, a year older than I am, and he's uh, now a practicing dermatologist in Orem, Utah. He and I used to wake up early Saturday mornings to watch cartoons. I mean, I was four, he was five, something like that. And we'd always wake up before the program would begin and before they'd go on the air, and you'd have all that snow on the TV. I don't know if you were, sure. well, you're too young to remember No, no, that. I remember, I remember. And my brother and I were sitting there one morning on the floor waiting for, I guess, uh, Howdy Doody or something to come on. And when it first came on the air, you saw the American flag, and then you heard the national anthem. Yeah, sure. My dad was just out of World War II. He walked in the room one day, and he saw my brother and me sitting on the floor. He had us stand up, salute during the entire national anthem, and he said and explained to us what that was all about. Mm -hmm. And remarkably, if I'm alone today and the Super Bowl's on or something like that, or 
and uh, and I hear the Star Spangled Banner, I immediately stand up, put my hand over my heart. That's something I learned from my daddy a long time ago, uh, and, I, and I appreciate it. Now, in, in company, you don't do that. You don't draw attention to oneself, but that's one of the things I have a vivid memory of. So a little bit of love of literature and language, a little bit of love of country, a little bit of patriotism, some sensitivities towards social justice. Yes. So um, how did you go from uh, Spanish to law? Well, it was a remarkable time at BYU. Uh, for whatever reason, the church decided they needed a law school. They selected as the organizer, the founding father of the law school, one of the most remarkable men in the history of the Mormon church, a man by the name of Rex Lee. And I recall, uh, I belonged to a, an honor society, I think the name of it's Blue Key, and one evening, Rex Lee came in and spoke. And he spoke about this incredible law school they were putting together. And I didn't really know too much about anything, except I knew that I'd be a much better lawyer than I would be a doctor. Mm-hmm. And I think it was seeing Rex Lee and feeling his energy. He was an absolute genius. Uh, he was a graduated number one in his class at the University of Chicago, was a very fine practicing lawyer. And I think it was Rex Lee that first got me thinking. I only applied to one school, BYU. In retrospect, I, I don't know if that was a real wise decision. They had no real track record, no hiring record. But they had Rex Lee. And that made all the difference. I think without Rex Lee, yes, they probably would have had a law school eventually, but they would have never been this far in 30 years. And for the listeners of mine that... Uh that, that are into the legal profession. Did you have any colleagues or any uh, co-students that have gone on to do some interesting things? Well, remarkably enough, my best friends in law school uh, were D. Benson, who's now the chief federal judge in Utah, sits on the FISA court, which is the court that reviews all the Department of Justice search warrants for terrorism. That's the court Bush likes to skip, right? Well, from time to time, he likes to go around it. But that's my good friend, D. Benson. He's a former U.S. attorney, former chief of staff to Orrin Hatch, a remarkably talented human being, a close personal friend. Paul Warner sat next to me. He just um, uh, gave up the position of the United States attorney for Utah. He's now a magistrate. And then there was another uh, classmate named Tom Perry, who was on Orrin Hatch's first campaign back in 1976 that went back to Washington with Senator Hatch, ended up being an attorney for the Senate Judiciary Committee, and then became a lobbyist. And Tom had a tremendous impact on my life in terms of the contacts I had. Unfortunately, Tom passed away. Those were my best friends of my peers. I did have a faculty member who had an enormous impact on my a career who made me understand that law wasn't law school. It was people. Uh, his name is Monroe McKay. Judge Monroe McKay is the, uh, uh, he was the chief judge of the 10th Circuit Court of Appeal, a Jimmy Carter appointee. His brother was Congressman Gunn McKay. Uh, he was a professor at BYU, but before that he was a, an attorney at Lewis and Roca in Phoenix. Famous case of Miranda. He was the junior attorney that worked on that case. He taught constitutional law, administrative law. And Monroe and I have been very close um, ever since law school. Uh, we've traveled to South Africa together. We've traveled to South America together. We've um, exchanged books. He's had an enormous impact on me. 
also because of um, what he taught me about being a lawyer. What it means to enter in the in the fray, to get involved and to care about your clients and um, and be professional. D. Benson and Paul Warner, the same way. I mean, if you listen to them talk and you listen to what they really care about, it makes me want to be a better lawyer. But more importantly, it makes me want to be a better person. Hmm. And uh, is that the same Monroe McKay that, that was quoted a few times in the uh, Greg Prince, David O. McKay and the Rise of Modern Mormonism? One and the same. Oh, okay. And how's he related to David O. McKay? I think he was... Uh, Nephew uh, or... Uh, I'm not exactly sure, okay. but it's not as close uh, as some people might think. I right. think it's a little more distant. Although, if I'm not mistaken, he lived next door to President McKay up in Huntsville. Okay. So, um, graduating from law school, um, being thrown to the wolves, so to speak, uh, you know, what what was it like? Well, let, let me just uh, take that expression of yours and clean it up a little bit. I was never thrown to the wolves. I was really lucky. Um, in the little town of Indio, California, where I grew up, one of the finest plaintiff's lawyers doing personal injury work had an office, and that's where he practiced. Even though it was a small town, he had a, a statewide reputation, national reputation. And my father had known him for quite some time. I clerked for him for two summers, so I got to know him. And um, he did not throw me to the wolves. What he did is he took me in and taught me. He would hold in-house seminars and teach me how to do things during the lunch hour, gave me tremendous responsibility. One of the most ethical, honest attorneys I've ever met, and one of the finest uh, orators, one of the finest persuaders you can ever um, listen to. So I was remarkably lucky. And, And I've always surrounded myself with extraordinarily talented people that I've learned from. What were the types of cases you uh, you started out? Injury cases. Personal injury? Right. They'd usually be an automobile accident or a products liability case. Uh, I didn't really do much medical malpractice case. I did one case. I won the trial. But because I've got two brothers that are doctors, my dad's a doctor, I just, you know, some things you're comfortable with, other things you're not. It just didn't fit who I was. But injury cases did. Uh any type of injury case, uh, I really found to be a challenge, and uh, and I felt like I made a difference. So here's where the here's the part of the interview where the sparks may start to fly a tiny bit. Um, you know, lawyers don't necessarily uh, hold the best of reputations among some in the United States, and I think if they were to reverse sort uh, the different types of lawyers, it might be the personal injury lawyers might even rank a little bit farther down that list, and so. What what could you offer to um, to an average LDS listener that's listening? Your inside view of um, uh, of personal injury law and where the reputation fits and where you think it is it's it's not appropriate. Well, I don't really think any sparks are going to fly, except if one comes into it with a prejudice or an agenda, which I don't think you have. But my yeah. listeners might. So well, let's, let's help help dispel that. Well, okay, let's talk about the Last Supper. Everybody invited to the Last Supper, a real believer that made you proud, or did we have one in it that was not really up to the moment? Um, You take any profession. You're going to have doctors that are alcoholics. You're going to have politicians that have $90,000 in a refrigerator like that uh, representative in Louisiana. You have a Huey Long who's a governor. 
So no matter what profession you want to drop the microscope on, you're going to find some horrible bacteria. Now, does that make the profession bad? Does that make us say, get rid of all the politicians or kill all the lawyers or whatever you might want to say? Of course it doesn't. But if I were to stand up and be an apologist and say, 100% of all lawyers are wonderful human beings, the answer is no. But let's just take a real adult look at this. Take a divorce case, for example. You got a husband and a wife that for whatever reason decide it's time to go their separate ways. Problem. What are we going to do about the assets? What are we going to do about the quote-unquote heirlooms that we've collected together? And more importantly, what are we going to do about the kids? Now, if you want to talk about sparks, the judges in California who are at most risk for personal harm are the, are the judges that deal with the family law issues. So whenever you have conflict and you bring someone in who's going to be an advocate for one side or the other, feelings are going to develop. Oh, that man who represented my wife was a, then fill in the blank. Or that woman who represented my husband did all these awful things to take my rights away to be a mother. Well, you do not have a monopoly on truth. When you put two people in a room and you have something that is extraordinarily important to both of them, and they have separate points of view. I heard it once expressed, no matter how thin the pancake, it has two sides. <laughs> well, take a lawsuit, and you're going to have all kinds of emotions course their way through that. You're not going to walk away with everybody feeling good about it. There's no Solomonic uh, result that comes out cookie cutter every time. It's messy. And people invest a lot of energy and their soul into representing their clients. That's the price we pay for democracy. Tell me a better system. Do you want to go and have the king decide it? I mean, we, re we rejected that with uh, uh, George, didn't we? I'm talking about the George of England. Right. I mean, uh, you talk about the importance of a jury trial. Some people say, oh, don't have a jury trial. Oh, really? <laughs> who do you want to decide it? Somebody who is selected by the government on some issue other than competency? You don't know. I, I think the jury system is one of the great um, tools of democracy. It makes us feel like we've got the small man has a chance. So uh, no, I'm, I'm really proud uh, to be a member of the legal profession. I have moments when I look at it and go, that embarrasses me. But I have moments being a member of the church, I look at something and say, that embarrasses me. Or as a member of my family, I see somebody that does something and I say, that really embarrasses me. But you don't walk away from a system that, that has some rough edges that needs to be oiled from time to time and say, I'm just going to reject it and I'm going to make attorney jokes and I'm going to demean the legal system that keeps us free. We're in Iraq right now. Okay. What are we really exporting to Iraq? Oil? No, no, that's what we're getting from Iraq. Oh, we want to give them a democracy. Well, Tom Jefferson, Jimmy Madison, Alexander Hamilton, et al. would say, oh, by the way, get out the Federalist Papers. Understand what we did. We have a jury trial. Read the Constitution. We believe in legal systems. Well, we need to export that to Iraq. That's who we really are. So, no, I don't apologize for being a lawyer uh, at all. And I don't, uh, what sparks are going to fly? 
Sparks are going to fly when people have differences of opinion. Thank God they don't go out in the street and say, okay, I've got my gun, you've got yours. <laughs> so, so what about, so, uh, you know, you've been pretty persuasive there. Uh, what about personal injury law and the reputation of ambulance chasers? And may, you know, may, Tell us a few stories of, uh, you know, egregious corporate or insurance company violations that maybe you've been involved in, maybe that you've heard about that might make someone uh, take a second look at, at the profession of personal injury law? Well, let's just back up. Where does it all start? Go get your Bible and look in the Old Testament and go through uh, Leviticus and, and look at how they resolved issues when people got hurt. It wasn't an eye for an eye as you and I would think eye for an eye. It was only an eye for an eye if you couldn't pay. See, there's no way that if you injure somebody, you can make them whole. But if someone comes into a family and because of negligence hurts the breadwinner, he goes from making 50000 a year to making zero, and he'll never make any money at all, who should pay for that? Who should bear the burden? The person that was injured, should he just walk away and say, well, things happen? Or should you say, well, gee, this happened because you made choices and you hurt this person because you made an incorrect choice. And how much should that person be compensated? Well, that's what personal injury law is all about. And, you know, I really find it fascinating that the American people has been so duped by the insurance industry that somehow these giant insurance companies that own every large complex of buildings in every large city in America are somehow disadvantaged. You don't think they can hire the best lawyers at the highest rates, get the investigators, and make people who are telling the truth appear to not be telling the truth? Do you think every doctor that the insurance companies hire to come in and examine somebody is not going to see it the way the insurance company wants them to see it? Well, how do you balance that? How do you get a fair fight out of that? Let me tell you a story. You want a story? I'll tell you a story. The last significant case I handled, I mean, were involved quadriplegia. A young man, 40 years old, was delivering bread at a Costco down in Rancho Mirage. And without going into a lot of detail, as he delivered the bread, a door went up. The lip of the door caught his bread rack, which, by the way, can weigh anywhere from 400 to 800 pounds, tipped it on top of him, and broke his neck, and he was a quadriplegic. Well, I was contacted uh, for that case about three days after it happened because the family knew me. I immediately contacted my associate in San Diego, and then I contacted Costco. We went out to the scene of the accident because I wanted to see what it looked like. And Mike Montgomery, who works with me on all my significant cases, had his camera. We took a picture of the door that was involved in this incident and the lip and also the lighting because this happened at uh, 5.30 in the morning. We sent a letter. We sent a fax. And we said to Costco, do not in any way, shape, or form touch anything, remove anything, change any evidence until such time as we notify you that we're going to send an expert out to look at everything to tell us if there is any defect out here with the door itself or the lighting itself. And we sent that letter. Uh, we never received word. We filed a lawsuit against uh, Costco and others, the manufacturer, the door, and other defendants, because this man 
would never move again. He needed 24-7 care. Uh, his medical bills were, oh, six million six hundred thousand dollars He'd never have a wage again. He needed 24-7 care with medication, physical therapy, and I could go on with that. Major, major injury. A life ruined. Uh, he had an elderly uh, pair of parents who really couldn't take care of him. I mean, they had their own problems. They were in their 70s. Well, uh, we arranged to go back out to the scene with all the expert witnesses some eight or nine months later. Uh, we get out to the scene, and lo and behold, the door had been changed. They had a different door there. Then they had a different light overlooking the scene. And one of the issues, what was the lighting like and the door? What was the lip like and how could you see and how did you know when to open it? Well, they changed that. Now, we went into court and we got a court order uh, that, uh, that obviously was in our favor because of the wrongdoing of the defendant. Now, their defense is, well, we didn't do anything intentionally. There was an accident. We had to change the door out. We changed the lighting as a regular course of of business, but they were facing a multi-million dollar verdict against them because of this horrible accident. Well, you can believe it if you want that they routinely had to change that door because of another accident. And just so happened that the key piece of evidence disappeared and they changed the lighting and that just happened to disappear. You can believe that if you want. But if Mr. Montgomery and I hadn't have gone out there three days after the accident and photographed it, which, by the way, we did with their permission, that's how arrogant they are, uh, they wouldn't have been caught. Now, we ended up settling the case. Uh, the settlement's confidential at their request, so I can't talk about the amount. But it's not a level playing field. If you think these insurance companies are at some disadvantage by some plaintiff's lawyer out in a little town of Palm Desert, then I think you ought to check, you know, um, how, how how well you're thinking. It's the biggest myth in America. Now, are there some plaintiff's lawyers who are flamboyant and who hold press conferences at a drop of a hat, who file frivolous lawsuits? Of course there are. I'm not here to defend them. I think that's wrong. And I think they should be uh, handled in a certain way by the state bar. But uh, I think the system works. How do you know when a settlement is too much? Like, you know, the spilling of the coffee on the guy at McDonald's? Whoa, or whoa, whoa. You start this question with a prejudice. You're under the impression that that was a verdict that was too high, right? No, I'm, I'm, I try no, no, and no. speak on behalf of my listeners. Well, that's what you're doing. Do you know how many times that woman was operated on? It was a woman, by the way. Case was in New Mexico. I know some people <laughs> involved. She was in. She was operated. She spilled the coffee in her pudendum that burned through her clothes, and she had, I think, 27 operations. She was not in a moving car. She had the, the cup on her lap, and she was trying to remove the, uh, the cover when it spilled. Now, what's the issue in the case? The issue in the case is that McDonald's had its coffee. I think, I'm not positive of this, but it was 20 degrees hotter than anybody else had it. So your fault, my fault, nobody's fault, that spills out. You're going to get a third-degree burn. Now, how does a customer protect himself or herself from that? I mean, Where's the voice in the corporate headquarters that says, oh, by the way, you know, we really shouldn't do it. How about if someone adjusted your shower? Uh, Which, by the way, that is statutorily set how hot that can be in your shower. You want to know why? Because children go into showers or they go into a bathtub and they don't know any better. And they can be scalded and badly burned and badly injured. 
Now, was that a fair verdict in uh, New Mexico? I wasn't there. But I don't think we know all the facts. Uh, but for every case you can give me where there might have been a verdict that was too high, you have an appellate court that drops it down. When it hears it, that's exactly what I think happened there in New Mexico. And they ended up settling it for significantly less than the jury verdict. There are case after case after case of injustices that go the other way. Do you really think the insurance companies take it on the chin every time? I mean, no one's that naive. Sometimes you get a, a person, I'll tell you an experience I had. I got called for jury duty. I was thrilled to do it. It turned out it was a murder case, and they had about 200 of us in an open room waiting to be called into the courtroom. Now, my chances of being left on a jury are, are about the same as my hair growing back on the top of my head. It's not going to happen anytime soon. So I'm sitting there in a golf shirt because I didn't want to be identified as a lawyer. I just wanted to be down there with the veneer panel. A man sitting next to me reading the Wall Street Journal. And I don't initiate a conversation. He says to me, he said, you know what makes me sick? All these blankety-blank verdicts for people that think it's just a, a cash register. I said, oh, really? I said, uh, do you think this might be a price? He said, I'd love to get on a personal injury case. He said, I'm sick of this. Now, if that man uh, during the voir dire, which is when you answer questions that are posed to you by the judge and the other lawyers, you think he's going to admit he's got that prejudice? No. And sometimes they get on the jury and you get horrible results. So I think on balance, juries do a great job. But that's because the lawyers do a good job. And sometimes you have a, a it's not a fair fight. That's part and parcel of our system. So um, let's talk a little bit about uh, your big tobacco case. Um, I would love to know, did you participate in any class action stuff before that? Was that the first one? And then, you know, on behalf of my listeners, how would you respond, uh, you know, to the claim that smokers knew what they were doing? They knew that they were, you know, doing something that was dangerous to their health and that, you know, such a huge sum of money, such a big settlement, so punitive, um, really wasn't meritorious given the fact that, you know, these were consenting adults. That's a lot to talk about, but... I think you have the gumption to carry it through. John, let me share a legal principle with you. We call that a compound question. <laughs> but I'm going to sort it out the best I can. First of all, I played a very minor role in a group called the Castano Group that came out of New Orleans that cobbled together about 80 law firms that brought class action lawsuits. I was of counsel to David Casey and Mark Robinson in California on the California tobacco case. Uh, so I wasn't a leader by any stretch of the imagination. I actually came in kind of late in the case. But um, Big Tobacco is um, a case that I think is meritorious. Um, you say, or one would say, well, everybody knows that smoking is not good for you. Well, let me tell you a couple of things we uncovered as that lawsuit unfolded. Um, who do you think they targeted with advertising. Do you think they targeted the, the people in their 20s to 30s? In California, 10 years before any of this came to fruition, a law was passed that you could not sue the tobacco industry, the alcohol industry, sugar, and I forget what the other one was. There are four of them. They were completely shielded from any lawsuit because of the argument that you just articulated, which anybody knows, you eat too much sugar, your teeth are going to rot and your bottom's going to get big or your coronary's going to get blocked. 
And if you smoke, you're going to get cancer. Ergo, no lawsuits. Well, interestingly enough, the way the attack moved forward against big tobacco in California was under unfair business practice. And the statute is uh, 17200. And what it says there is you can't have false advertising or illegal advertising. As the facts came out, tobacco targeted children. They knew that if they didn't get people hooked by the age of 12 to 14, they'd never get them. Hmm. Why do you think you had Joe Camel? Does Joe Camel appeal to a, the John DeLins of this world hmm. or, or Johnny or Joe Sixpack, who's 35 years old watching a ball game? Of course not. He appeals to the child. Uh, that's what the attack was really about. You take tobacco. Tobacco, uh, if you want to smoke it, uh, for whatever your reasons are, that's your business. But if you're going to spike the nicotine with ammonia and make it more addictive than anything on the planet, well, there's a problem with that if you don't make full disclosure. Um, one of the attorneys involved in big tobacco is John Clamaco out of Cleveland. John is a remarkably talented lawyer. He represented um, um, the great entertainer, um, um, and his name's slipping me. He's the um, Sammy Davis Jr. And he helped Sammy Davis Jr., but when he died, uh, John went to the hospital. Do you know they had a special apparatus set up in the hospital for Sammy Davis Jr. so he could smoke? Hmm. Because he was so addicted? Hmm. Um, the way the Castano group got put together is a man named Castano died. His best friend was Wendell Gauthier, one of the really flamboyant, tough trial lawyers out of New Orleans. He's, he's a story all by himself. And the widow had him give the eulogy. And then after the funeral, she turned to him. She said, you're a big-time lawyer. You know it killed him. What are you going to do about it? And so um, Wendell uh, got 80 of his best friends together, said, you're all putting up $100,000. We're going to lose this case, but I've got to file it hmm. because it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. And you know what's really sad is that we went back to Congress because Big Tobacco wanted some protection for future lawsuits, and we thought we had the whole thing settled. The number was $364 billion with smoking cessation programs in place. With and a B? With a B. With medical monitoring to be paid out over 25 years, which would have absolutely, in my opinion, done away with smoking in 25 years in America. I mean, a great blessing to this country and the medical profession and the, and the um, insurance industry that pays for these uh, hospitalizations and medications. We go to Congress, and unfortunately, the bill went to one committee instead of the other. And I'm not going to get into the personalities, but it was just a, a mess. The whole thing fell apart, and it ended up going back to the states and whatnot, and it got settled for about $200 billion. They left $164 billion on the table, and now the states are using the money for all kinds of things, not all of it addressing the tobacco uh, problem. So, no, I don't think that that was an excess. Uh, I don't think that it's um, something that shouldn't have been brought. I think it got resolved in a way that wasn't necessarily in the best interest of the public. There's other ways to do it. You know, when you watch a movie and you see somebody smoking a cigarette, do you think that's by... The guy just wanted to smoke? Yeah, yeah the you know, screenwriter just happened to write it in, right? Well, they also get paid a half a million dollars to smoke. You think when you watch a movie and there's a, all, of, all the cars are Fords 
I think that's an accident. And I'm, well, having everybody drive a Ford is not deleterious to your health. But seeing a Sylvester Stallone, this icon, or a Julia Roberts smoking a cigarette because that's sexy, and a 14-year-old girl or boy sees that, I mean, there's a problem with that. So it's a, it's a case you're proud to have served on. Oh, absolutely. And some people say, well, you know, the fees were outrageously high and on and on and on. Well, you know, the reality is that the fee was set by uh, arbitration where everybody got to present their um, case of what they did or did not do. That wasn't just a, an arbitrary and a capricious uh, way. I mean, it was done very professionally. And I don't, I don't hear anybody really objecting to it. The tobacco companies are objecting to it. Do you know the tobacco companies were paying their own attorneys about $600 million a year to fight these lawsuits? Hmm. Now that it's over, they're paying $500 million a year to the plaintiff's lawyers over a period of time. Hmm. Saving money? Saving $100 million a year. <laughs> so, I mean, the, the problem with the American public is we don't have podcasts where you can sit down for three hours and really have a good explication of what's going on. We've got sound bites. We've got sound bites. And we've got sound bites paid for by very bright people and done by extraordinarily talented people who know how to advocate. Right. and touch you in a certain way. We made that a little jingle at the end of it or a little music or something. So that's how some of it gets done. Hmm. So how did you go from uh, tobacco to um, to this issue of the Baton Death March? Tell us a story of what, you know, what we'll do is to, to close out um, this hour. Talk to us about, you know, your however many years into your law profession, you've been successful, however that's affected you personally. And then talk to us a bit about the journey to Harold Poole and um, what it was about him and the other people you met that made you decide that you had to help tell this story. Well, you know, uh, i got to get you to law school. i got to get you someplace where they teach you what a compound question is. But I'm going to sort through this, John. <laughs> I'm going to do the best I can. Well, you know, it was 1999. And we'd finished the tobacco case, and we were waiting for the fee arbitration and all that, and we all knew it was coming. I'd run into some remarkable attorneys uh, during the tobacco wars. I mean, you're, those are the best uh, plaintiff's lawyers in America. Extraordinarily bright, uh, very talented. And if you ever want to hear great storytellers, just gather those guys around a, a bonfire with some uh, marshmallows and sit on the log and listen to their tales. They're the best storytellers in the world. Well, David Casey Jr. was one of the big tobacco lawyers in California, one that I was of counsel to. I was in his office one day in September of 1999, and we were talking about, you know, what direction we were going to go now that tobacco was over. And he said, Jim, we've just formed a mega firm, Herman Mathis, Casey, Kitchens, and Jarrell, where what we're going to do is kind of replicate what we did in tobacco, bring all these top firms together and take on major national cases because we got the resources, and that's what we want to do. I said, really? I said, can I participate? And he said, yeah, on a case-by-case basis. And he says, as a matter of fact, let me tell you about a case. And he tells me about Lester Tenney, who came into his office, brought by Michael Goldstein, a good friend of mine, who was um, a soldier during World War II, stationed in Manila. And when December 7th hit, with Pearl Harbor, it was December the 8th in Manila. The Japanese attacked both places at the same time within nine hours of each other. Difference being, the Japanese actually invaded the Philippines. When they invaded the Philippines, um, 
The men fought, then they were later surrendered on April the 9th, 1942, largest surrender in the history of the American Armed Services. The men were put on the Bataan Death March. They were marched 85 miles without adequate food, without adequate water. The men were bayoneted. They were buried alive. It was just horrific. And about 1,000 American soldiers died out of 10,000. Filipino soldiers who were on that march died in numbers that are just hard to believe. Let me give you a little math here, John. If you take the number of men who died on the Bataan Death March during that five-day period, 85 miles, and you divide it into the number of miles, you had a dead body every 30 feet for 85 miles. It's just horrific. Mm. The ones that survived that went to Camp um, O'Donnell in Cabatatuan, many of them were put on ships and sent to Japan, turned over to private corporations and used as slaves. Well, David Casey told me that uh, in 1999, that summer, a bill had passed in California, authored by Tom Hayden, of all people, that gave the right to uh, Americans to file lawsuits in California against the Nazi corporations, or the corporations uh, in Nazi Germany that used slave labor, and their allies, which would be Japan. So we filed lawsuits, or David Casey did file lawsuits on behalf of the American soldiers against these Japanese corporations. He said, Jim, if you'd like to be involved in that case, you're in it. And that's how I got in it. So um, tell us about your trip down to St. George or over to St. George. Well, when I first got involved in the case, um, you know, I wasn't really sure um, how I'd get clients. I mean, it's not like there's been an auto accident and someone knows your reputation, they call you up. And I was on the board of visitors of BYU Law School. And I was up for an executive meeting, and Paul Warner, the U.S. attorney, was chairing the meeting. And Paul and I are best friends. So in the meeting, he just kept leaning over to me, whispering in my ear, and just giving me a hard time about the tobacco case and how I suck them dry and other things, you know, <laughs> making fun of me. And so finally, I just, you know, basically had had enough. And during one of the breaks, I said, look, Paul, let me tell you about a case I'm involved in now. And I described the POW case. And he literally grabbed me by my arm. And he's my size, about 6'4", you know, uppers over 200 pounds. He just grabbed me and says, Parkey said, my father-in-law was on the Bataan Death March. He is your client. He has to be your client. I said, Paul, let go of my arm. <laughs> Have him call me. By the way, what's his name? He said, Harold Poole with an E on the end of it. I said, have him call me. I'd be more than happy to talk to him. I didn't really understand the significance of it at the time. The next day, I'm back in my office in Palm Desert. Phone rings. My secretary said, it's uh, Harold Poole. So I take the call, and uh, and if you're a trial lawyer, you know what it's like to have that kind of a client call you. I mean, you really want to pay attention to it. Pay attention to all clients, but I mean... And I said, well, Mr. Poole, um, and he said he was interested in the case. I said, I'll tell you what, I'll catch the next flight to Salt Lake City, and I'll sit down. Oh, he said, don't do that. Don't do that. That's just too much trouble, and don't want you to do that. He said, he said we're having a reunion of the 20th Pursuit Squadron, all my guys, in St. George, Utah, on Saturday. Can I call you back? I said, sure. He calls me back in a couple of hours, and he says, um, I talked to our commander, and he's agreed to give you 15 minutes on the program on Saturday hmm. at 2 o'clock. I said, great, I can hardly wait. 
because in the peculiar world I live in, I can't go searching clients. They got to search me, but I can go out and give speeches that they like what they hear. They come and get me. Right. So I, I, talked my wife into driving to St. George, which is about a seven-hour drive from Palm Desert. I said, look, let's drive to St. George. Uh, you rest in the hotel. I'll go give this speech, and then we'll have dinner and go to a movie and spend the night. She said, great. So we showed up to St. George, and I put Sue in the hotel. I went over and met Harold Poole. Never met him before. They were staying across the street, and um, I started to talk to him. And um, he had these piercing eyes. And he had a presence of somebody that uh, I knew intuitively was different. Different in a special, positive way. So uh, he took me down to the conference room where the meeting was going to be held, the reunion. The chairs were set up in a semicircle. And as I was standing there, the men slowly came into the room. There was only about 13 of them. Some of them had their wives. One was on an oxygen, uh, was on oxygen one had a walker, one with a cane, um, all about the same age. And as they sat down in the semicircle, I was overwhelmed with an emotion that this is just really a different group of people who have shared a life experience that I knew a little bit about. I knew a little bit about Batan because of my father, and, and I love history. So um, Harold Poole stands up to introduce me because I'm the only one on the on the program for that afternoon. There's going to be 15 minutes. He said, uh, this is Jim Parkinson. You all know my son-in-law, Paul Warner, is the U.S. attorney for all of Utah. He said, Jim Parkinson's a good man. And he sat down. And so I took the floor, and for the next 15 minutes, I gave a, a presentation about what the case was about, etc. And I watched the clock because I knew, you know, don't go over with these men. And I turned to the man in charge, and I said, I guess my 15 minutes is up. And he said, Mr. Parkinson, he said, you'll keep talking till I tell you to sit down. <laughs> and so I talked, and I talked, and I talked. And, and most of the questions came from one or two of the women. And one of them I just adored after a couple of years, um, um, Marlene Agnes, just loved the, her husband and the veterans and did everything for them with the uh, Department of Veterans Affairs. Just a wonderful woman. And then we wrapped it up. And then Harold and I went back to his room and we started talking. And um, he shared some of the stories with him. And I said, well, gee, Harold, uh, tell me about the Bataan Death March. And he described it for me. And he had a way of describing it. He's a retired mailman. He's not a wordsmith. He's just somebody that experienced something firsthand and remembered it and could tell it. And I was just overwhelmed with emotion. And then we continued to talk, and I, I said to him, I said, Mr. Poole, uh, your son-in-law, Paul, tells me that you were awarded the Silver Star, which is one of the most significant medals uh, in our armed services for heroism. And he said, yes. He said, I, I did. And I said, would you mind sharing with me what the citation reads? I didn't want to tell me what you did. I said, no, what did this? He said, do you really want to hear it? And I said, well, yeah, I kind of do. And we're sitting in this little motel room with that round table next to the window with the wall air conditioner, two chairs very close to each other. And he said it was December the 8th, 1941, right after noon. And he's walking out of the um, the chow mess hall. And he, and he heard airplanes and he looked up. And he didn't know if they were American or Japanese. And all of a sudden the bomb started. 
If you can imagine, he looks over and he sees a building blown up and then he starts seeing bodies flying and all kinds of, uh, of mayhem occurring. And so um, after the bombers went by, the zeros came, you know, the pursuit planes that would drop down and strafe the airfield. And so he jumped into a foxhole and one of the planes is coming right at him. So Harold had the, um, the ability to grab an air-cooled, 30 caliber World War One vintage machine gun, took it off the pole, and waited for that plane to come right over him. So Harold put it in his sight and pulled the trigger, and the, and the doggone thing jammed. And then the you know you see the puffs of smoke, uh, puffs of dirt where the bullets are hitting, and uh, petrol is hit and flames everywhere. And I mean you really get this picture of total chaos and fear. I, I could actually smell the fear as he's telling me the story. He said the plane. Uh, missed him and then it went out and circled and then Harold who was a mechanic had that rag you always see in the back pocket pulled it out and he cleans the gun and then here comes that Japanese zero again and was 75 feet over his head he shot and killed the pilot Hmm. first plane to be shot down the Battle of Manila and Harold looks at me and um, this 80 year old man a retired mailman and he says, I guess that's why they gave me the Silver Star. <laughs> and uh, then I said, well, gee, how did you make it through all the carnage and the Bataan Death March? And you went from 190 pounds to 97 pounds. And he says, you know. <laughs> and I said, uh, Mr. Poult, no, I don't. And I said, no, no, you know. You're LDS. I said, well, no, candidly, I really don't. And he says, well, it was prayer. It's the faith of my family, my, my parents, and, you know, you know. And so when we said goodbye, there are many more stories that night. It was dark when I said goodbye to Harold, and I crossed the street, and I went and got Sue. We actually went to dinner. And while we're at dinner, I'm kind of a little bit quiet, which is not my way. And Sue asked me what was the matter, and I said, well, I'm not sure I want to spend the night here in St. George. She said, what are you talking about? And I said, well, I just had an experience that I'm not sure I can share it with you at dinner. It's going to take a little bit of time. I said, would you mind if we just turn around and go home? Now, keep in mind, we're in St. George, Utah. They're not used to having people rent hotel rooms at the Sheraton by the hour. (laughs) And so she said, sure. So we went back and checked out, and we're going across the desert. I mean, it was a long day. And what happened was, I have a son, Matthew. And um, at the time, he was in high school. Great kid. I just love Matthew to pieces. But he didn't want to be a student. He didn't want to study hard, didn't want to read. He wanted to skateboard. He wanted to play water polo, but just a good kid. And I was on his case a lot, I guess because he didn't want to be me. He didn't want to follow what I did. And so I was always, you know, telling Sue, he's got to be a lawyer, got to be a doctor, got to do something important. So on the way back, I kind turned... Of, kind of like your dad, huh? Kind of, well, yeah, kind of like my dad. <laughs> Apple doesn't fall far from the tree, and so... As we're traveling across the desert in the middle of the night, I turned to Sue and I said, you know, Sue, I've been on Matt's case. I said, um, if Matt can develop the character of the man that I just met, Harold Poole, I don't care what he does for a living. That's the only thing that matters to me. I want him to be like that man I just met and the character I just experienced. And that's kind of what uh, really got me involved with Harold Poole.
I just wish I could have told him in the 